Revelation chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, a hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life.
So we'll get uh, verses 5 through 8 again. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Uh, James Glasgow uh, translates that as, Lo, I renovate all things, by the way. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. He that sat upon the throne in verse 5, because we don't have to be told who that is, who sits upon the throne. Uh, Now, at some point in my life, for a long time, I thought this was God the Father sitting on the throne. But we learn from Revelation 3.21, Jesus said, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Uh, So I believe we're talking here about the Lord Jesus Christ sitting upon the throne. Uh, Not clear about with my father, what that quite means. Uh, uh, But in, in a sense, when Jesus said, I and the father are one, so that may be what he's referring to. Um, He makes all things new, he says. Behold, I make all things new. Or as I said, James Glasgow said, Lo, I renovate all things. Now, Christ, we know, is the mediator between God and man, God the Father and man, uh, as Scripture says. Um, We can't go to the Father directly. The Father is pure, complete holiness, and we are sinful. And uh, we, we would be destroyed if we tried to approach the Father directly. Uh, because he has pure holiness, he does not tolerate any sin in his presence. So we have to come through a mediator, Jesus Christ. Uh, the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus is called. Because he, as a man, took uh, the man's, his people, his, his men and women, of course, and children, uh, but he took their sins upon him so that he, he now represents uh, purity to us, uh, purity in us. It's his righteousness uh, imputed to us that allows us to come to, to, come to God through him. Um, he calls himself Alpha and Omega. the beginning and the end, as Christ called himself in Revelation 1.11. Right? For these things are true. I am Alpha in verse 6. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. Uh, So he said, I'm like like A to Z. I'm the beginning and the end. There's there's nothing else beyond that, beyond me. so that's another reason we know this is Christ on the throne, because he calls himself Alpha and Omega. No word in the Bible is the Father call himself Alpha and Omega. The salvation of his, his elect began in him. Okay, we were chosen in him from the beginning of the world, before the foundation of the world, Scripture says, and it ends in him. 
living with him forevermore as a new creation, as in when the redeemed are gathered in, God's enemies are cut off, sin and death shall be destroyed. He reigns for as king forever and ever, for there is no other name given under heaven by which men may be saved. So Christ says, it is done here. He says, look, in uh, um, yeah, verse 6, and he said unto me, it is done. Well, that may remind you of Christ's last words on the cross. John 19.30, it is finished, it is done. Uh, His words at the outpouring of the seventh vial in Revelation 16.17, we see the same words. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. What was done then? He destroyed his enemies once and for all. It was done. And when Christ on the cross died, he destroyed his enemies once and for all. Uh, But now the words mean that he has fulfilled the promise of Ephesians 1.10. If you'd look at that, please. First chapter of Ephesians. This is the promise. This is the promise. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that's when when the Lord has decided it's time to do this, he might, in world history, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Okay, there'll be a point in world history where God the Father will gather together in one all things that belong to Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. God's people in heaven, God's people still living on earth, as we've talked about so many times. Uh, And they will be brought together in him at the end time. So this is when he says, it is done. The words mean that he has fulfilled that promise of Ephesians 1.10. See, he he is the author of our faith. That is, we, uh, as Hebrews 12.2 says, he, uh, he is the author and finisher of our faith. Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. He, he begins us. He's the author. He begins us in, in the faith. We're chosen in him at the beginning, before the foundation of the world. And he's also the finisher of our faith. That is, he perfects us. We finish. Uh, as though you, you, I guess an analogy could be you finish a, a fine piece of furniture. Uh, you know, you're a finished carpenter. and You do the fine work and you just get it perfect. Uh, as perfect as man could do it. Uh, well, he finishes our faith true, truly perfectly uh, at, at the end time. Our, our pure uh, sanctification will only come, obviously, when, uh, when we are uh, uh, in heaven with him or, on, or brought together with him from heaven uh, into him at the end time. So he is the finisher of our faith as well, the perfecter of our faith. Uh, we also know it's Christ on the throne because he repeats what he told the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, he says, uh, I will, in verse 6, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. You remember what he said to the woman at the well? Uh, the water of life is salvation. And all the blessings that flow from it like a refreshing fountain. Joy, comfort, peace being among the chief blessings. Christ gives this to all of his people freely without anybody deserving it. We know that. We don't deserve any of this. We deserve hell. Uh, 
and revelation, uh, excuse me, and salvation only comes by Christ, as we know. Uh, this Glasgow goes on. James Glasgow, the uh, Reformed commentator, says, "This living water, all the true servants of Christ enjoy. With it, they are spiritually baptized, purified, and refreshed." He says here, "I will give unto him." I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. Verse 6. It's a gift. Now, a gift isn't earned, is it? Somebody gives you a present. They don't do it because you've earned it. Otherwise, it would be a payment, not a gift. Uh, Salvation is a gift. It's not earned. Uh, Salvation, then, as we know, and we've heard many times, but it doesn't... You know, it doesn't uh, mean that we shouldn't hear it many more times. Uh, Chapter 6 in Romans, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God... See, it's it's wages of sin. You commit sin, you get your salary, your payment for sin, which is death, which is eternal separation from God. That's what the Bible means by death. Uh, For the wages of sin is death, but it doesn't say the wages... Uh, of serving God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord because that would be works righteousness, wouldn't it? You know, it's the sal- your your payment for serving God. All the good things you did, well, you get salvation. No, it says the gift of God. And that blows Arminianism out of the water. There, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't earn salvation. There's nothing you can do to merit salvation. It is a gift. Um, one way scripture describes it again is in John seven thirty seven, where Jesus, in that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He didn't say, I want to see your good works before you come to me. No, if any man thirst, if any man wants peace, joy, salvation, reconciliation with God, let him come to me and drink and get it. Very much, uh, Christ was fulfilling Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Without anything you do. It's not wages. It's a free gift. Without money, without price. Without any payment from the recipient. Otherwise, it would be bought. And as I said, something you buy is not a gift. Uh, without the payment of your sacrifice to do the right thing, without your efforts to be a good Christian, uh, those are all things you're supposed to do, but not to earn salvation. A saved person wants to please the Lord. If you have to earn salvation, if you have to pay for it with something you do, it's not a gift, and it says it's a gift. However, the gift of salvation and all its blessings, this verse makes it clear. Other, Many other verses make it clear. It's not given to everybody, is it? Otherwise, everybody would be saved, right? Otherwise, you know, we go to heaven and see Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong and, you know, uh, um, Bin Laden be up there too, right? Probably not. Probably not. So it's given to those who thirst for it. That's the interesting thing about it. It's described as living water to those who thirst. Uh, Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Well, if you if you just drank a big glass of water, you're not thirsty anymore, are you? 
So you're not going to be interested in somebody who says, well, if you're, you know, come to me, I'll give you a drink while I'm not thirsty. So it's those who thirst, those who want reconciliation with God. Those who have no interest in that, they're just happy with their life. The, the, as we prayed about the cares, of, as, as uh, we read in the uh, New Testament, uh, those who are concerned about the cares of this world and crowding out their interest in God, you know, just f- filling their lives with their jobs or watching television or, or their family uh, or amusements, watching movies all the time or playing video games or whatever it is, if they let that crowd out, the more they do that, they let it crowd. They let their desire for the Lord just be crowded out uh, with with just little entertainments in front of their eyes to keep them busy, so their minds don't really focus on what they ought to be focusing on. Because where, you know, when you're on your deathbed or you're hit by a car tomorrow and you're lying there in the street dying, are you going to be saying, "Boy, I wish I'd played more video games." You know, I'm really glad about the video games I played, though. That was that was really cool. But I, there's some new ones that I'd really like to play, and I never got the chance to play them. No, you're not going to be saying that. You're going to say, "Lord, save me! I'm so sorry. I spent all that time playing video games, or all that time at the office, or all that, all the other times." You're going to be focusing on the Lord, and you're saying, "Why was I so stupid? Why couldn't I just turn off the television? You know, at least." an hour a day and spend the time instead with you and your, and your word and in prayer. And we're, I think we'll all have those thoughts on our deathbed. We'll all, I mean, who, who has ever died and said, boy, I, I did plenty for you, Lord. I did enough. You know, I, I was just so good. You know, I just prayed plenty and I read the Bible plenty and I memorized some verses too. And uh, I did a great job. I don't think so. Not anybody sincere. We have to thirst for it. Although we're, you know, Christ has made us new creatures, we remain creatures, so we are still dependent on our Creator. We've been given a new nature as, as His children, a holy nature, and it's impossible for one who has the new nature. Now listen to this. It's impossible, if you have the new nature, to be satisfied with the things of this world. If you're satisfied with the things of this world, that's a good indication that you haven't been given the new nature by Christ. Does that mean you read the Bible 24 hours 7? No. Does that mean you think about God 24-7? Sadly, no, because we are still, we have this corrupt carcass that we carry around, our flesh, which is sinful, which we were born in sin with original sin. It's still dragging us down. Plus, we have Satan whispering in our ear, and we do fall for it. Uh, so we, we do have temptations that we fall for. But we, our natures are changed. We have a holy nature that wants to please Christ and is sad when we don't. We grieve when we sin. Unbelievers don't grieve when they sin. They're, they, they're happy about it and they want you to sin too. They're happy when you do it too. They ridicule if you don't. So we've been given this holy nature. We live as strangers in a strange land. We're far from our Father's house. We're, far, we're not at home here. We're not at home. And we have a, a real gnawing desire, a panting as the, as the heart, the deer pants after the water, again allusion to water, to be at home you know, if, you're, if you're a believer you, you're, uh, there is this uncomfortableness you're not really, something's not right you know? we're not home we're not where we should be we thirst for home 
We want to be with our Lord. We want the blessings of life eternal, the holy refreshment, the living water that only our natures can be satisfied with. I quoted Psalm 42 a moment ago. As a heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after the O Lord. You have to know that something's missing from your life, something you ache for but you don't know what it is. You just know your life is going to be incomplete until you get it. C.S. Lewis wrote this theme in a number of his books. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis, you are missing out on a great opportunity. Please. Uh, he, I, I've taken some, some, uh, some from his various books uh, where he, he, he talks about this theme. Uh, one of his books called Transposition and Other Addresses. He says, we are born helpless. As soon as we are fully conscious, we discover loneliness. Another book called Encounter with Light. If you are really a product of a materialistic universe, how is it that you don't feel at home there? Isn't that interesting? If we're the product of evolution, we should feel just fine about where we are and about life. But we don't. Your Christianity, he writes, if I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Also from mere Christianity, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The gift of salvation and all the blessings that accompany it is also given to those who overcome, as we've read. He who overcomes. We've read this over and over in, in the book of Revelation particularly. In this world we shall have trouble. In John 16, Jesus said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We fight against enemies who are used by Satan against us. We know that from Ephesians 6, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. And they are flesh and blood, but they're used by spiritual wickedness, by Satan and his his demons. We fight against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So we're part of the church militant. We've heard that term before, the church militant. The church in heaven is the church triumphant. We're the church militant. Constant spiritual battle against the world, against the world in the outward sense, in in, in, in the church militant, as we batter down the gates, even the gates of hell can't survive the onslaught of the church of Christ. Uh, But we also battle spiritually inward against our flesh and against the devil. Uh, Now, I can hear an Arminian saying, well, this passage about overcoming and these other passages about overcoming, that's proof you have to cooperate in your salvation. You won't be saved unless you overcome. You know, the victorious life fantasy. Uh, There is a movement very popular in the 1800s, or excuse me, yeah, 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s, called Keswick Movement, uh, particularly in England, but uh, you may have read some of the stuff called the Victorious Life, and that you're, uh, you know, the goal of a Christian is to is to have victory over all sin, and it's a kind of a perfectionism approach. Uh, and an Arminian or a, a, a Victorious Life person would say, and they're the same. Uh, 
victorious like people were pretty much all Armenians. This passage is proof you have to cooperate in your salvation. Yes, it's a free gift, but it also says you have to overcome. Whatever, whatever overcome may mean, one thing you can't deny, it means you have to do something to be saved. Overcome, right? Well, I can deny it. <laughs> no, I don't think the passage teaches that at all. The Arminian argument ignores, among many other verses and passages, Galatians 4, 7. Thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You're, a, you're no longer a servant. You've been made a son. You've been, are you a, when you're adopted into a family, is it because of something you do as, an, as a child, as an infant? No, it's certainly not. It's the decision of the parents to adopt you. Well, God has adopted us, not because of something we did. Uh, he, he saw us and adopted us before the foundation of the world, in fact, before we were even born. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, in the womb, before the, it says in Scripture, before the children were even able to do anything at all. God says, I want this one, I don't want that one. Mystery, a mystery. Uh, but it's God's will, that's the only thing you can say. Paul, was, uh, Paul addresses that in Romans, uh, you know, to paraphrase it, uh, he says, well, suppose you ask me, why, is, why, is that, why did God will it that way? Why does God operate that way? And his answer is, <coughs> shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. It's because, because God, why does God, we stop, we don't ask the question, why does God do something? Why does he will it that way? He wills it for his glory. He wills it because he wants to will it. That's the only answer there is. And once we start putting our own judgments on that, we are committing blasphemy. How can, how can the pot say to the to the potter, why did you make me this way? I can't. I should I can't. Okay. Uh, that passage that I uh, confirms that we haven't received our inheritance. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. See, we received this in part, but we haven't received it in whole yet. In this life, we are adopted by God, but later we actually receive our inheritance. Okay, We're adopted, but we haven't received our inheritance yet. We're heirs, but we're not in full possession of our, inher- of our inheritance. Uh, in Ephesians 1, 13, ye were, see- ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest, the, the, the earnest down payment, you know, the earnest money deposit of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So, overcoming, and why is that not works righteousness? In this life, we're surrounded by temptations to sin from within our, our own parts and from without. We fight against those temptations. Now, do we fight in order to receive our inheritance? to qualify us to receive it. The Arminian argument is that an heir is made an heir because they fight for the inheritance. The Bible says an heir is, is the heir because he's been given the right of inheritance. He's been made an heir. So he had this long before he started to fight. He had it in the womb. He had it before that. You were an heir. Uh, you fight not because you're going to be made, you want to be made an heir, 
you fight because you've been given the right of inheritance and your marching orders are to fight, fight against sin, overcome. God's heirs have the free gift of the inheritance, but as heirs they are targets and they have to fight against temptation. So that's why we fight. That's what overcoming means. We're targets and we fight. And we've been told to fight. We've been given marching orders. It's not to get anything. It's not to qualify us for anything. It's not Arminianism. Uh, and, by the way, this uh, verse, I just as an aside, Christ says in verse 7, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. That's another verse in the Bible that proves Christ's divinity, isn't it? He says, I will be his God. I will be his God. Christ says, I am Alpha and Omega, so we know it's Christ. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. That's the same promise made to all believers. Hebrews and 1 John, the believer's sonship, adoption, regeneration, book of Galatians. We are heirs and joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. I, I, I'll finish with I don't want to finish on a, a, a very well I'll just go quickly here we're running out of time it says the fearful and the uh, all these bad bad things uh, starting in verse 8 the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers etc uh, fearful are not going to inherit kingdom. Those who fear witness to their faith, the scorn of others, fear being ridiculed, etc. I, you know, there's there's a lot we can say and I'm not going uh, to next time we'll, we'll, we'll go into more details about, about this kind of chilling uh, verse 8. Uh, I will say it's, it's a dire warning to us if we don't trust in Christ alone for our salvation. We can, we'll, pick, we'll pick these verses, that verse apart later, Lord willing. But right now, all I want to say is, if you do trust in works righteousness, that you have to do something to be saved, that your good deeds will earn God's favor, as we've said many times, what a lot of people believe is that God takes all, when you die, he'll take all the good things that you've done on one side of the scale and all the bad things and see how they balance out, and that's how you get into heaven. That's what most people believe. The Bible doesn't talk about that at all. That's a, that's a satanic lie, actually. Uh, it's It's... If you trust in that, if you worship at the altar of a false church, if you worship at the altar of money and possessions or power and influence, you're on the sure path to hell. So unless you throw yourself on the mercy of Christ, believing in him alone for your salvation, and nothing that you do, you do good works because you love him. Just like your parents, just like for your, for your husband or for your wife or for your parent, or, or for your parents. You do things that are, that are good, that are nice, that are good for them. Why? Because you want to earn their favor? You would do it because you love them. That's what we do for the Lord. Because we love our Savior. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to do things for him, not for any reward, just because we love him. And it pleases us to, to do things, to obey him. He said, if you love me, what? Obey my, obey my commandments, obey my ordinances. So 
If you are his own, you're going to throw yourself on his mercy. Then these precious promises are for you, including verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Let's pray.